Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest, and today I'm here with Emily Bell McCormick. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. So excited to be here with you. I'm so excited to have you back on the show. Just by way of introduction, Emily Bell McCormick is the founder of The Policy Project, which is a U.S. nonprofit organization that helps educate around and move forward healthy long-term policy at a local and national level. Emily's also the editor of Utah's NBC affiliate KSL Studio 5 Smarter series, which informs viewers about issues, government policies, and politics of the time and helps to empower viewers to find their place in it all. And I'll also mention that Emily is involved in the movement to pass the Equal Rights Amendment in Utah, and she was one of our reading partners on season one when we read and discussed the ERA. So Emily, we're so excited to have you back today. Thanks again for being here. Yeah, absolutely. This is just such a great podcast. I love it. I'm a big fan. Oh, thanks. Okay, so one of the reasons I wanted to have you back on the show is because I recently attended a fundraiser where you talked about some efforts that you are heading up in the state of Utah, and you described lots of different things that were totally thought-provoking and so important. But one of the like mental images that I took away from that fundraiser as you were speaking was this dynamic where you're talking to male legislators about some women's issues and the image of you sitting across a desk from a man in power really struck me as a dynamic that I wanted you to talk about on the show because you are so brilliant and so capable and experienced and and well-spoken, but it was still like this unequal power dynamic that really struck me as a visual um, representation of a patriarchal power structure. So I'd really love to hear about some of the projects that you're heading and that you have going on and your thoughts about how patriarchy plays into those issues. So I think the first thing I wanted to ask you about is the period project. So if you could tell us about that project and then if and how you've seen patriarchy at play in the period project or the need for it, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, you know, it is a very fascinating kind of vignette or microcosm of this larger picture of how, you know, in the year 2021, these things still play out because a lot of times I know obviously in the work you do and definitely in the work I do, which is policy work related to gender equity and gender equality, I'll hear a lot that people feel equal. And I love saying like, you know, equality is not actually a feeling. I'm glad you feel that way, but it's actually a metric. You know, it's something you can measure. It's something you can quantify. So, and particularly in this work that I'm doing now, you definitely kind of see how these structures that have been in place since before you and I were born way, way before that continue, right? So I have a group called the Policy Project and our current work is called the Period Project. And what this is, it's work surrounding menstrual policy. Menstrual policy is kind of a new concept. And the idea is that we have policies regarding everything, you know, like the cost of your gasoline, the cost of your milk. We have policies around men's hair growth drugs, for example. We have policy around what toilet paper costs. Like policy is just throughout everything in American life and in in most other countries as well, but definitely here in America. And as we looked at policy and the ways like what what is holding back, you know, we know that 
women and girls specifically don't enjoy full equality in our systems, right? And part of that is because of the way that policies are implemented, the policies that have been implemented, those that are just lacking because of a lack of awareness and those kinds of things. Sorry, we're getting really fundamental here into like how, you know, the issue of menstrual policy came up. So in looking at like, why why is that? Why is it that women are still not equal? You know, in the state in which I live, which is in the Western United States, our, my state was ranked 50 out of 50 for women's equality. So came in dead, dead last and has been for the past four years. And for at least a decade as, you know, lowest five, this is like an ongoing problem. And when you look at that and like, what is affecting this and what's something concrete we can do, especially when you're looking at kind of more conservative, politically conservative states, it, it tends to be a little bit bigger battle in those states. One thing that we found is that menstruation this uh, very natural occurrence for every single female who is born, you know, it affects 50% of the population over time. Um, This has never had any policy around it. Like I'm saying absolutely nothing, right? We know because we've just been through COVID that other public health issues that affect like a third of the population, you know, COVID at the end of 2020, there was a study and it said that one in three Americans had been affected by COVID. And we have so much policy around that. And we're all very familiar with that policy now, you know, masks, mandates and vaccines being implemented. Like as soon as they, you know, research and vaccines immediately and businesses shutting down and all these different kinds of things that we implemented. But we've been dealing with menstruation also since the beginning of time, literally. Menstruation was critical to begin time for humans, right? Like we we have to menstruate to procreate. And so um, nothing had been done around this. And so what we have done is basically looked at what are some like quantifiable things that we can do, policies that we can put in place that help deal with menstruation. And, and you know, three or four years ago when I started this work on menstrual policy, we looked at something called the tampon tax. And that was basically getting rid of a, tam- a tax, a sales tax that incurs on menstrual products. So we know that, you know, Rogaine, does not incur sales tax. Uh, Viagra does not incur, incur sales tax. Band-Aids, sunscreen, like much lesser items don't incur, incur sales tax, but period products were incurring sales tax. And so we got to work on that here in Utah. It had actually been introduced for four years prior. We call it the tampon tax of ridding our state of the tampon tax, right? Um, and there was a woman who introduced it in, in my home state of Utah and it had a legislator who had introduced it. And in those four years prior, it went to, there was a bill filed and the way the legislative process works in the U S things get broken down into committees, right? And these committees made of six to 10 people, depending on what it is, um, sit and they evaluate bills to see which ones are worthy of actually having a vote by the full legislature. So what happened in these committee meetings here in Utah, prior to me being a part of this conversation, was that this bill to get rid of the tampon tax was filed by a female legislator who was a Democrat, and it would go to these committee meetings. And in these four committee meetings, you can go back and listen to this, um, the word menstruation was never brought up, the word period was never brought up, and it was all male committees. 
And every single year it was killed. So it would die before it got a full vote, right? It was, it was determined in those committee meetings that this was not essential enough that it would be voted on, right? Meanwhile, we have policy regarding men's hair growth and regarding erectile dysfunction. Like these are just facts, right? Like th- those things have been having policy around them and this has not. So one question I have is what is their reasoning behind not taxing Rogaine or sunblock or whatever? Is it because those are deemed like needs, essential needs or something like that? What's their reasoning? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Um, Those are deemed medically necessary. That's a terminology used by the IRS. And what our state adopts by nature of the IRS having that definition, our state adopts the same to do a sales tax. So the IRS never recognized period products as a necessity, as medically necessary. That's in air quotes. Um, And therefore, our state also did not deem those things as medically necessary. So so really interesting because they've just been left out. And frankly, Amy, you know, when you look at it, you realize like this is not necessarily the function of a male legislator or legislature or a male Congress saying we hate women. Right. And I know that you and I are familiar with this. Right. It's it's either one oversight because we don't have women present. We don't have women's voices in those spaces, even to this day. Right. Like we don't have enough where it's being talked about. Or it's, it's, it's like, oh, this isn't our place, right? Like, so a more kind of innocent version of this is like, ah, that's a woman's issue. We don't want to, you know, we shouldn't be involved in that conversation, but we're involved in all other parts of their lives. And we, you and I are also very aware that there is plenty mandated around women's bodies. And so interesting that we want to withdraw from this conversation, but we're involved in others. Oh, yeah. Wow. The irony of that. Okay. And then what you're saying also is men can plead ignorance to a point, right? Like if no one's ever brought it up at that, I mean, we can give them at least the benefit of the doubt for that, but you're saying that there was a period that, that this was being introduced in the meetings and somebody was, is this right? That somebody was looking at it and deciding like, this isn't a high enough priority. So then they couldn't plead ignorance anymore, right? They're seeing that that's a, an issue. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. So at that point, it is on their shoulders, right? And I I start getting involved in this work a couple years after it's been introduced in my home state and has been introduced in some other states within the United States. And that's when I got in and just said, you know what we need is like a good messaging campaign. We need to like reframe this. We need to make men feel their responsibility in this because ultimately that's what we really needed to do is convince like our conservative male leaders and conservative female leaders in our state, that this indeed was something that should be legislated around. But we really needed to kind of reframe the issue entirely. And so that's when I got involved. And that's, you know, the fundraiser that you're talking about, that's where I kind of spoke about the way that happened was basically getting some other really great men involved. You know, I had a couple lobbyist friends who were male who were like, oh yeah, you know, after explaining the issue to them, like, yeah, we can totally see this. Let me make some introductions. And I landed in a lot of male legislators' offices, sitting on their couches, you know, and at first doing the gentle gentle introduction, like, hey, have you ever considered supporting this kind of legislation? We really needed to kind of equalize the way that we look at public health things and medically necessary things. 
And then when there would be kind of a lack of understanding or a lack of buy-in, that's when I got really personal and made it really awkward. And I can remember one meeting in particular, sitting in a male legislator's office with uh, the male lobbyist who introduced us and this male legislator who is truly a good man and having to say like where it wasn't resonating, like, let me tell you something. If I started my period right now and I was sitting on your couch I would bleed out on your couch and it would make it very awkward for you and I. You know, there is like a certain amount of humility and embarrassment that comes along with that conversation, even though I talk about this every day. You know, in that setting, it wasn't like, oh, this is so easy and I don't give a crap. It it really was, you know, it's uncomfortable to get Mm -hmm. that personal and to say like, I want you to think for a second about me starting my period. And now that you've thought about that, I want you to think if I were your daughter sitting Mm -hmm. here and starting her period, like right here when she's trying to talk about something that really shouldn't have to even be talked about, you know, with, with many groups of people, they can't believe this is even an issue. And Mm -hmm. so to have to explain it and explain it and then get so personal so that they can finally feel it. It's, it's Mm -hmm. tricky, right? Like we Mm -hmm. shouldn't have to go that deep, but, but we are required to at this point in time for sure. Mm-hmm. Just to, okay, so you're telling, you are getting that personal, which takes so much courage. I mean, you're saying it's kind of embarrassing and it takes humility and it does, but like the courage to do that, I'm just in awe. That's amazing. And it's infuriating that you have to take it to that level. But what you're trying to demonstrate to him is this is a necessity. This is a medical necessity to have period products, to have tampons. And so it's unjust to say that, that, they should be taxed, right? And that's an in a uh, burden. It does add up, right? For people of limited means to have like extra taxes on things that are are medically necessary. That's like a that's a class issue as well as a gender issue, in my view. Is that right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So we know that these kind of issues impact people who are low income, people who have experienced a lot of trauma in their lives, people who, you know, I'd often is with communities of color. You know, you've got like a lot of other, just like with so many things in the policy world, the people who are hit harder hit even harder, right? And and that would absolutely be true of that. And so I'll kind of like take you through the timeline to today. And, and so we worked on this like tampon text, right? And we finally figured out a way. I got a couple male legislators who really bought in and were willing. They didn't want to say the words, but they were willing to kind of let me, you know, be <laughs> the mouthpiece of this. And they were willing to support. And, uh, you know, a great man, uh, Robert Spenlove, who really got behind it and was willing to to take this on and open a bill file because I needed, I knew that I needed a male and I needed it to be a Republican and I needed him to be conservative. And and Mm -hmm. he was able to get on board. And because of that, we were able to slip this um, tampon tax into a larger tax reform bill that was happening at the time um, that dealt with the entire tax code in the state of Utah. So there was some hesitation by legislators and not just males, some females that were against it. And but we were able to pass this and as a part of this larger tax overhaul. Now, fast forward, there was a big public campaign. People didn't like one element of this. There was a food tax attached to this like big tax reform bill. And so there was a lot of public outcry and the tax reform actually was overturned one month later. So for Mm -hmm. one month, you know, period products were tax free in the state of Utah. And then because of this public outcry, it was turned over. 
So that happened to line up with the legislative session and we were able to reintroduce it as a separate bill and it ended up not passing. And, and the argument was, you know, we got it through essentially the house of representatives, but when it got to the Senate, they said, we don't really like these like carve outs in our tax code. So let me just mention quickly some carve outs that Utah has in its tax code. Mm-hmm. Um, snowmaking machines. We have ski resorts in Utah. It's a big ski place. They're not taxed. Car wash tokens, not taxed. Uh, arcade tokens, not taxed. If you have attended any type of university or college sporting event, none of those tickets are taxed. So the amount of tax revenue that you could get out of a sporting event at a collegiate level, it's like, I, I, I don't remember the number, so I shouldn't even say it, but something close to like 14 million, 16 million a year, right? The tampon oh tax- gosh less than a million. We had it, we had it, we had it earmarked for a million dollars. So, so if you're talking about income from sales tax revenue, there's not even an argument there for this, but it was killed. It died on that cross, right? Like that's where it died. That's where they would not pass it this up this year was because they didn't like carve outs, but we know there are a million other carve outs in our tax code because the lobbyists were strong in those areas. Right. So, um, So, you know, you and I can look at this and say that there is a gender equity issue here for sure, that that there's a lot of bias going into this decision making, especially, frankly, when you see women legislators get on board with voting against it. It was, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of a fascinating like, oh, we're all buying into this gender discrimination, right? And and Mm -hmm. to gender bias. So after that, I really had to like take a step back and look at what is possible what is what are we able to ask our legislature to do? Because we have 75% of our legislature is male here. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to be 80%. We're now actually down because we just got one more female. That's exciting for us. <laughs> um, you know, and so we pivoted and our current project is actually, I left the tax behind. The tax is symbolic. It's it's the right thing to do and it's equalizing. It's not going to get done here in the next couple of years because the legislature is not going to do it. So what we looked at next was how does the impact, what would the impact be for women and girls and people who menstruate in our state to put period products in schools, right? And the impact of that is so, so much greater. And so that's the legislation that we're currently working on. Okay, awesome. Tell us about that. So this is, um, we actually have a bill file open. Um, it is to put period products, that means tampons and pads, into every public and charter school in the state of Utah. It's not um, middle school through high school. It is K through 12 because we know that 10 to 15% of girls and students who menstruate start at age seven. In communities of color where there's where there's more trauma and low income, that number is closer to like 38% of those kids are starting at age seven. So I have a seven-year-old. She's in first grade. She's not developed at all. I can't Mm -hmm. even imagine what would like what that would be like. And so it's Mm -hmm. like these kids who have already experienced difficulty in their lives are also experiencing this. And that makes it for a very difficult situation. So we know that um, having uh, these supplies in bathrooms will make just a world of difference for these kids, you know, 
One thing that's interesting that we found as we've worked with male legislators and especially through the tampon tax, you learn, right? Like you go through these things, you get a little bruised, a little banged up, but you also learn. And one of the things that was so fascinating um, is that when we have a lack of representation, you think it doesn't really matter, but there is a fundamental misunderstanding about menstruation. And that is that both genders, you know, all genders experience bathroom issues, right? Everyone has to pee. Everyone has to poo. Sorry to get graphic on you, but it's real, right? And you and I both know that if in the middle of this podcast, I needed to go number one or number two, I would just say, oh, dang, I have 20 more minutes. I'm just going to hold it, right? So that was a perception that that it took me getting through the tampon tax to realize that men did not fully understand. So even if they're talking to their spouse, even if they're talking to their children, you know, even if they're talking to a sister, a mother, someone about menstruation. They didn't fully understand that menstruation can't be held like other bathroom issues, which actually, when you think about the logic, if you've never experienced it, you don't know that necessarily. And so reframing the messaging around menstruation, again, this is why representation matters, right? Because female legislators, if they voted against it, that's on them because uh, they know that it can't be (laughs) held. So we started using the messaging that, listen, like a bloody nose menstruation is involuntary, right? Like we cannot control the type. It's spontaneous and it's involuntary. So when it starts, it has to be cared for immediately. If it's not cared for immediately, it interrupts everything else that you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. You're unable to finish your classwork. You're unable to continue your presentation at work. You're unable to continue grocery shopping, everything, any activity you're doing is immediately interrupted because of menstruation. So, you know, you learn like when you're dealing, this is why patriarchy and just gender differences are so fascinating because some of those basic, basic arguments have to be made that you didn't even realize, you know, I didn't even realize I had to make that and make that in the beginning. Yeah, totally. I mean, what I what I keep coming back to is just even the title of Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. It's like the default is a male. That's the default human. And then the a female is secondary and an afterthought. And like, wait, what? What is a what is the female reality? And for men in 2021 to not even know I it's kind of astounding, actually, Emily. I'm like, I can't I believe it, but it really it really does highlight pretty, like you can't argue with that. It highlights that dynamic of like the default human is the male, that that there our whole society is structured around this and they could be that ignorant of the way human bodies function. I'm kind of floored, to be honest. Yeah, it is. It actually is kind of flooring. I mean, the reason you're feeling that is because, again, I think that this work in menstrual policy is such a microcosm of everything you talk about on your show. You know, it's a modern day, like a play of everything that we're talking about and what it looks like in the year 2021, you know, and you talk about that, the, you know, the default is male. And I just had finished reading that invisible women, you know, that book about, yes. you know, just kind of, if people haven't read it, you should definitely read it. Um, just because it talks about just statistics, you know, um, there's no emotion behind it. It's just like, statistically, the world has been set up for males. And that Mm -hmm. isn't a, it's not something to argue with. It's, it's just numbers. Right. Right. And so I, I kind of love that. And, and that is absolutely true of legislation and policy. Everything has been set up 
around males because they're the ones making the laws, you know, and the responsibility, I just want to say in this moment, it's an interesting argument too, because the responsibility is on both parties. You you know, males have absolutely like, because they are the ones in power generally, and to this day, they still hold the majority of power in most states and in our country, there's, there's a heavier responsibility on them, right? But the reality is, as women, we need to get over our own biases that we experience about our own gender, right? And start talking about these things more openly. Because you and I can go tell our sons or husbands or friends that are men or whatever, you know, about menstruation. And the important thing is that we start doing that. We have to start doing that, you know? Yeah. I mean, to a point, men can't be held responsible if they've never had the experience and no one's ever told them before. And so that's a an really excellent point that part of the responsibility is ours to get over our embarrassment and our internalized misogyny that we've inherited and just be like, no, we're talking about this. I refuse to be embarrassed about this anymore. It's a great point. Yeah. Something and it's interesting do. because when you think of um, groups that have been um, marginalized throughout time, and this isn't always true, but we've seen some different sections um, take back words or ideas yeah. that once harmed them and own it as a group. You know, yeah. I know, I know that, and some of the, I know some of that ideology is debated, but the reality is, you know, I think that we need to maybe do that as women because the interesting thing about menstruation is when we think about words and like the context in which we use words, it, it's actually acceptable to be like, oh, she's on her period or, oh, she's just PMSing. Like men can actually say that, which yeah. is so interesting. And yet we would never hold them accountable for, you know, providing period products in the workplace or, right. you know, like you, you get into the like logistics of like managing a period or, or heaven forbid, and this is way far down the line. But when you think about it, women do experience PMS. What about having a couple hours of leave for when they're having PMS? You know, like (laughs) there are a lot of policy considerations that are Mm -hmm. so far out there. We haven't, you know, I won't even go there quite yet with Mm -hmm. our legislature or with, you know, the federal government, but there are a lot of things to be considered in this. It's a very, very real thing that affects women and people who menstruate. Yeah. So, and that's such a great point that you can, a man can make fun of it, but hasn't felt any responsibility to actually help take care of the real issues of it. Yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah, it's super interesting. Okay, so can we talk about a little bit about period poverty? Because just like we talked about with the tampon tax, the adding a tax to uh, menstrual products is a hardship. But you said, you know, that that period products, like providing them in schools, is a way bigger issue that does that can help people so much more. Could you talk about period poverty, what that means, how many people it impacts? What does that feel like for a girl or family? Yeah, absolutely. So this is an, a really interesting thing and really what drives me to do my work, right? You know, we've recognized certain things like food as such a necessary item that in schools we've we've figured out that you know why it's worth giving kids a free meal and a free like a free breakfast and a free lunch because if we don't give them that they can't concentrate right like presenteeism like being present in what you're doing they're unable to concentrate um and so so this idea of of providing these like basic needs it's not new to us 
it's not new to conservatives and it's not new to liberals, right? Like mm-hmm. it's it's not new to any of us. We're all familiar with that. And I'll get back to that in a second. But period poverty is this idea that experiencing a period actually increases your poverty, right? And and it does because we know that menstruation, it affects like girls, women, and people who menstruate on an average of three to five days a month. So that's the average for an average of 40 years in a lifetime. And those 40 years are really right in childbearing years. They're right in um, your main workforce years. They're right in the middle of all of that. And and there's an expense. There's a dollar number attached to menstruating, right? We know that depending on where you're able to buy your period products. So, you know, you and I may be able to go to Costco and purchase, you know, 100 tampons for $12. But the reality is that someone who's already in poverty they're buying seven tampons at 7-Eleven for $7. Like it, the, the economies of scale handicap people. So experiencing a period has an actual number attached to it, right? Mm-hmm. And those numbers have been estimated at differently, but over the cost of a lifetime, you know, it, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Now that's not compensated for or made up for in any type of healthcare. We don't even recognize it. Like when you go into your doctor and you get your health form about have you fallen or not since your last visit, you're not even being asked about menstruation. We're trying to change that, you know, but, um, but these things like they're not recognized in the most basic of spaces. And so period poverty just really is an allusion to the catchphrase for the added poverty that women experience because they experience menstruation. So if you're in poverty, you're experiencing period poverty without a question, right? We know that um, half of women, 46% of women who experience poverty have to choose every month between a meal and a period product. So I'm Mm -hmm. sorry, if you have children, that number goes up, right? And this is just for a a single woman. That's what that data is. It's for a single woman. So, So if you experience poverty and you're looking at, listen, I can either feed myself and my kids or I can purchase a tampon, you're not buying a tampon. I can almost guarantee you that, Mm -hmm. right? We know that one in four teens cannot afford tampons at all, right? We also know that, you know, we talked about girls starting at a super young age. We know that one in four students has missed class because they can't afford period products. So these are very real numbers that affect you in serious ways. What that looks like, like sometimes it's hard to have those statistics resonate. So let me tell you a little bit about what that looks like in a day-to-day life. You know, um, in my very own neighborhood, I live in a school district where we have a homeless population and we have some of the wealthiest people in our state. It's just a very diverse school district, um, socioeconomically diverse uh, school district. And in talking to one woman who grew up in this district, you know, she grew up with parents who were unable to care for her because they had addiction issues. And so she's when she started her period, she would stay home every month. She would lay out rags on a couch and watch TV while she was menstruating. So we know that chronic absenteeism in our school districts that starts affecting graduation rates is two days a month. If you're bleeding for three at the minimum, five at the max, you know, up to seven, eight days, you know, which is, I have family members who bleed for seven days a month. She's missing all that school, right? I think she did, she did graduate, but she's continued to struggle with poverty. You know, she's still in poverty. She's a 40-year-old woman. Um, there's a girl in a neighboring school district who talks about she's a recent immigrant, and she talks about the fact that her family buys 
cotton balls because they're less expensive than period products. And she and her sisters do not go to school because um, the cotton balls fall out of their pants and that's really embarrassing. So they're not even going to school. You know, we talk about, um, we recently spoke to a custodian at a local school that is well-funded. You know, our standard of living in America is no joke. We have a great standard of living. Most of these kids even have access to cell phones. But because it's so unacceptable to experience poverty and to have it be visual, menstruation, and also because it's happening to females, you know, it is not talked about. So some, so one of the a custodian at a local school district said that every single day, she wipes blood off of classroom seats, not bathroom seats, classroom seats when kids go out to recess. So she's wiping blood off of these seats. She knows she was so struck by it because she knows these kids go home after that. They're not coming back to class when they've bled out on the seats. They don't come oh. back, right? Oh, and so it affects our education. Like a lot of times what that happens in policy, sorry, I'm just talking and talking, but a lot of times what happens in policy that's so interesting is these issues that are considered issues, women's issues or children's issues, we get sidelined. We do not get funding. We do not get the attention other issues do. And so one of my goals is, has been to really reintroduce um, this as an issue of workforce. Because if you're working at 7-Eleven and you're bleeding out, you're not going to work the next day. If you can't care for your period, you're not going to work. If you're a child in poverty and you're bleeding out at age nine and you don't have parents who care for you, you're not going to school. I wouldn't go to school. You wouldn't go to school and a male legislator would not go to school because they're doing that, right? Like we know that. And so we have to reposition these issues as workforce issues. It's really important to look at these issues and broaden the conversation because as much as you and I are ready for men to take on every women's issue in the world and get it done, we have to show them that it counts for our economy, that it counts for our workforce, that it counts for education, and, and that it ultimately benefits men. Because as sad as it is, we're all self-interested, right? And so until it does, like we will not make a splash with these issues. Um, I can tell you that in my state where we consider ourselves to have kind of low numbers of workforce, we know that women make up 40% of our workforce in our state, right? 60% of women work. It, it's like we, we, and this is in a state where culturally and, and with a majority religion here, women don't work as often. Right. And even here, we're a massive part of the workforce. So it's, it's not okay to ignore these. And what's being overlooked is that when we ignore women's issues, we're actually doing damage to the entire system, right? That we all, when these things are cared for, we all are lifted, including men, including men in power. We all do better. And that's, that's very, you know, it's a very misunderstood thing. Yeah. Wow. That, that was just stunning. And I'm, I'm still, I mean, you talked a little bit about this at the fundraiser that I attended, but just hearing it again, I was aware of period poverty as an international issue in developing countries. And I have volunteered before, like making period products, reusable ones for days for girls that were being sent to other countries. But hearing you talk about it again at the fundraiser and today, I just to be reminded that this is happening in our own neighborhoods to people, some people we know sometimes and we would never even know it because there's so much stigma and shame around it. So it's just sobering and it makes it that much more urgent that this is a problem that we can solve in our own communities. So how can we get involved, Emily? How can we help this problem get solved? 
You know, that's such a good question. And thank you for asking it because we can all do something. Um, and there are a few different levels of involvement with this. You know, we have like a piece where it's donating product and people seem to feel, you know, donating tampons and pads to local homeless shelters, local schools, food banks, you know, whatever your community has, depending on the state that you live in. And that's an important piece of this, right? But ultimately that does not solve period poverty. And the cool thing about period poverty is that it is solvable in our lifetimes. So poverty is this big, overwhelming issue. Women experience it at much higher rates. I'm sure you know this and I've talked about this before. Um, but the reality is that this piece, we can remove this barrier in our lifetime, which is what gets me like super excited inside. And the product donations are really good and we need them because there are people who need products today. But the reality is, you know, Amy, you and I, we would never remove toilet paper from every single bathroom in schools and restaurants and places of work in our homes and say, hey, we're just going to do a product drive. We're going to just, we don't think the government should be involved with this. We're going to just do a product drive. Like the idea of that is so silly. It's like, it's super yeah, laughable. Yeah, it's absurd. Yeah. Yeah. It's just silliness, right? And so when people kind of push back, like, oh, you're trying to make us become a communist country or something, when, you know, like when I get that kind of pushback, I'm like, then what about if we remove toilet paper everywhere, you know, and, and then we'll just rely on your kind heart to donate enough toilet paper for us to all use, right? It, it's it's like that, but even more so because menstruation can't be held, right? So right. It, it's almost more critical. So when you think about it in those terms, um, and you think about the way that that it's that it really handicaps women, girls, and people who menstruate you realize that this really needs to be a policy. We have to have policy involved in this and we have to have governments, businesses, um, every level of our society get involved in fixing this. So the way that you can get involved, you know, that listeners can get involved is really by, you know, first and foremost, start talking about it. We need to remove the stigma like yesterday, right? We need to remove the stigma two generations ago, you know, in 1776, we also need to get women elected to office so that we can take care of these issues, you know, but, but really just be a little more open about it. Challenge yourself to mention it to a spouse, a child, a friend, uh, you know, anyone challenge yourself to talk about menstruation. Um, so that's the first thing. The next thing is of course, donate product. That's probably the next easiest thing to do. The next level would be really like reaching out to your legislators, seeing if there are any community organizations in your areas that are working on legislation around this. There are several that have cropped up. If not, join us, you know, the policy project is the website um, and, and come and look at what we're doing. We're doing, you know, some training for other people in other states that this is something that really speaks to you and you want to get involved with the legislature in your state or at a national level. That's something you can do because ultimately we just have to have our government recognize this and then, and then getting businesses involved. If you work please talk to your business about how important it is to put period products in bathrooms. That's an, kind of an embarrassing ask. It's ridiculous that it's embarrassing, but do it, you know, like stay where you are lift where you stand is like our whole ideology behind this. Like if you're a stay at home mom, that's great. You have enormous impact. Talk to your daughters, talk to your sons. You know, if you are a woman or a person who works, talk about it there. If you have some extra time and could get involved legislatively do it there. So there are a lot of different layers to this one and just lift where you stand. I love it, Emily. Wow. I'm blown away and so, so, so grateful to have you talk about this today. Again, I, I mean, I've heard it before. And even today, I, my jaw was just like on the floor some of the time when you were talking. This is such an important issue. And I'm so grateful that you've brought it to our attention. Just so thankful for the work that you do. 
Thank you. No, it's so neat to come and talk about it. And I just think, I just have to say, it's just really exciting if in your lifetime you can discover something that's actually workable that will make a concrete difference in the lives of women and girls. It, it's just, you know, in, a, in the weirdest way, I feel so like blessed and lucky to be able to see this because a lot of things like we can see the problem, but we can't see the solution. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to work on a project where there's an actual solution is just like, it's the experience of a lifetime, you know, and and to get buy-in and to be able to message it in a way that resonating, you know, we're going to get this legislation through without a doubt in my mind. And we won't stop until period poverty is over. So it won't just be this, it will continue, you know, because that's just what we're doing. That's just, it's, it's the thing that I can see. It's the thing that I can do. And, and we are lucky to be in a position where it hasn't been interpreted over time in a weird way to have that like tabula rasa and start fresh on an issue is just, it's a chance of a lifetime. So I feel really lucky to be able to be involved in something that will have such a concrete effect for all of us, you know, for, and not just for our women, our girls, it's for all people, right? Like this is men, this is all people. This affects everyone. This makes life better for everyone. So it's, it's just a really neat opportunity to be doing this. Mm, Super inspiring. Well, thanks again, Emily Bell McCormick for being here today on Breaking Down Patriarchy. So appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for the great work you're doing. It is amazing and you are changing life. So I'm thankful to be a part of it. We're so thankful to Emily Bell McCormick for sharing her wealth of knowledge with us and for working so hard in the fight for economic and gender justice. As an update for listeners, in the time since Emily and I recorded this interview, House Bill 162, which is period products in schools, was unanimously approved by the House Education Committee. So currently, the bill is awaiting a vote from the Utah House of Representatives, which will ultimately determine its fate. So for those interested in getting involved with the fight against period poverty or in any of Emily's other incredible work, please go to your browser and type in thepolicyproject.org or follow a link to The Policy Project from the show notes on our website. Before signing off, I also want to thank Sam Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olivest for our social media. And as always, thank you so much for being here, listeners. We're so grateful to have you here. Next week on Breaking Down Patriarchy, we'll be joined by two guests, Ariana Balte and Maureen Hernan, to celebrate Irish American History Month. We'll hear all about life for women on a rural Irish farm and about the fascinating history of Ireland's patroness saint, the powerful Saint Bridget. So join us for those stories from Ireland next week on Breaking Down Patriarchy. 